0: Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, a personal postpartum depression story and what can help.
1: The panic attack started right away again and they took him and I was fine and then they would bring him back for that bonding and I told my husband he could have him and I tried to get some rest. Plus,
0: the latest updates on household drugs of abuse.
2: There's new regulations in place. They can't get their prescription opioids. A lot of folks turn to heroin, and those not turning to heroin are are turning to Imodium.
0: And all thyroid growths may not be cancer. We'll look into it.
3: The majority of growths or nodules on the thyroid are actually benign. If you look at all nodules, probably 5 to 10% are actually cancerous.
0: All that and a selection from our Healing Muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. Is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, postpartum depression is more common than once thought. We'll hear one woman's personal journey back to health. Plus, the newest household drugs that are being abused. But first, thyroid cancer, what you need to know. With nearly 65,000 new cases of it occurring in this year alone, thyroid cancers seem to be on the rise in this country. Here to fill us in on what we need to know about this disease is Dr. Scott Albert. He's Assistant Professor of Surgery and the Chief of the Division of Breast, Endocrine, and Plastic Surgery at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Albert. Thanks so much for Hi. coming in. Good morning. So let me um, start by just a general you know, definition. When we say thyroid cancer, what are we talking about?
3: Yeah, we're generally defining cancer as, uh, you know, a collection of abnormal cells within the gland that have uh, the potential um, to spread elsewhere. Um, That's generally what we think of as a cancer, is its ability to either regrow or spread to other parts of the body.
0: Let's help us understand the thyroid. Tell us more about what it is, where it is, and what does it do for us? Mm
3: -hmm. The thyroid gland is a—it's uh, a pretty small organ. It's you know, uh, thirty to fifty uh, grams really, and it sits in the neck, the base of the neck, and it controls your metabolism. So it really has a vital role in your in your body's health. And uh, frequently, the thyroid can develop problems, whether it's uh, overactive or underactive, and it can control your. Uh, metabolism that way. So uh, when we do surgery on the thyroid, it's actually necessary to replace that vital function with uh, a thyroid medication, which is um, the exact same hormone that your thyroid makes. So uh, it's uh, it's a really effective uh, way to treat problems with the thyroid, namely if you have your thyroid gland removed. But it's key to the key part of your body's function, really.
0: So that hormone is. Thyroxin is that correct correct yeah. so that hormone basically helps regulate your heart rate your blood pressure your body temperature and your overall weight that's all correct of those things. yeah it has pretty uh, important
3: <laughs> very important it has a, a variety a multitude of factors and functions and uh, and uh, that's how oftentimes people present if there's abnormalities in the function of the thyroid now the function of the thyroid usually is unrelated to actually thyroid nodules um,
0: those just th- co-occur
3: Typically. I mean, some thyroid nodules can be uh, overactive, um, but oftentimes when I tell patients you have nodules and you have thyroid functional problems, and and oftentimes they can be
4: separate.
0: So is it actually on the rise, or does it have to do more with our current methodology of of just detecting it?
3: I think it's a little bit of both. Um, Clearly, we do more and more scans. I, I, I I can tell you many times I see patients with thyroid nodules because of uh, they've got an MRI of their spine or they've been in a car accident and they had a trauma and then we get a CT scan that includes the base of the neck and so that's by far the most common way that I see nodules and, and as those nodules are a certain size we will biopsy them and find thyroid cancer. the Most of the rise in thyroid cancer is in papillary thyroid cancer and most of the rise is in nodules that are about a centimeter or less so that tells me that these are being found incidentally um, in part because of scanning
0: and they are cancer though
3: they are cancerous Um, so
0: the question would be we're finding more and we may be finding finding them incidentally but in fact does that mean that we are that there is a rise in this type of cancer
3: it's hard to know because uh now if we start looking at uh you know there are some actual autopsy studies out there where many people probably live with thyroid cancer their whole life, and it just is so slow growing that it doesn't impact their lifespan.
0: I think that's a key point.
3: It is that
0: it's not necessarily life threatening. Correct. And does it always affect the function? I mean, you, what you were alluding to is you can have you can have a a um, a nodule living on the thyroid and have Can you have normal thyroid function despite that?
3: Absolutely, yeah. The thyroid, even people that have many nodules, oftentimes their thyroid is working properly. Once in a while, we see some abnormalities, and we do check the thyroid function when we see nodules. But typically, most commonly, I'll see patients uh, that have nodules and their thyroid is working uh, perfectly fine.
0: And are there nodules also or growths that are benign on the thyroid?
3: Yeah, the majority of... uh, growths or nodules on the thyroid are actually benign. If you look at all nodules, um, probably 5 to 10 percent are actually cancerous, even if you biopsy them all. In fact, when we look at nodules, one of the more important things that we look at now is how they appear under ultrasound because ultrasound is a great test for the thyroid gland. You can see nodules very well and we can see a lot of features that are either making that nodule low or high risk and so we can help classify a nodule as concerning or not based on, really, an ultrasound is, is probably the best test. Yeah,
0: we're going to get a little bit more to those yeah. diagnostic tests, but that's very, obviously, that's non-invasive. Correct. And that's very, that's very positive. So who's at risk? I mean, who are the most likely candidates to develop thyroid cancer now? Okay, yeah. I'm not just talking about nodules.
3: Correct. Um, so for thyroid cancer, the, you know the, the risks are clearly a family history you know, a strong family history of thyroid cancer would, would put someone at, at risk. Also, you know, if they've clearly had exposure to radiation. So we ha- we learned a lot from Chernobyl about radiation and its impact on thyroid cancer. Those are the kind of the most glaring risks. Um, are men
0: or women more likely to develop them?
3: Women are more likely to develop thyroid cancer. And, uh, and the other thing is, you know, women kind of in a in younger ages can also develop thyroid cancer so we're more attuned to you know nodules in in the younger age group in general thyroid you know cancers in general probably Develop in older age groups, but you know, thyroid cancer is one of those that can develop in, in the younger populations. If
0: you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with thyroid surgeon Dr. Scott Albert. We're talking about thyroid cancer. So, there's been some recent buzz in the scientific community talking about this whole idea of reclassifying some of these tumors. Now, you and I have just talked about the fact that you can have nodules in the, in the thyroid that are benign, basically, but then there are tumors that have been classified as cancerous in the past, and there's this, a new way to look at that. Can you explain that?
3: Yeah, um, so typically when we um, investigate thyroid nodules, oftentimes we do a biopsy, and that's a very a fine needle aspiration, we call it, because it's a very, you know uh, a small needle that's really kind of uh, pretty easy on the patient and what we do is we aspirate cells and those cells are then looked at by a a pathologist and they classify those nodules into six categories. I usually tell people four but you know in the gray area are indeterminate nodules And, and those nodules cannot always be determined based on FNA without at this point without either removal of those nodules.
0: FNA is?
3: Fine needle aspiration. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, And so one of the issues has been, you know, how do we deal with some of these indolent tumors that we were calling cancers before? Um, Typically, the standard treatment has been removal of the whole thyroid gland, sometimes radioactive iodine, and and perhaps we're probably overtreating many of these thyroid cancers.
0: So when you say indolent for our listeners, basically something that would be very apt, as you had said earlier, to to grow quite slowly mm-hmm. and perhaps never truly cause any harm to the host, so to speak.
3: Correct. Yeah. Indolent, meaning mean, yeah, just uh, may grow slowly at that one spot, but really has no risk of spreading elsewhere. Um, uh, those are typically indolent type tumors. And and the recent article had really classified one of the uh, thyroid cancers into, uh, you know, taking the cancer word out of the of the diagnosis to help us discuss the options with the patient.
0: But that seems to be a real kind of a bugaboo or a problem. Once something has been called cancer, I don't think if you if you're the person who's being told that diagnosis, you most often want to do everything possible to treat. That cancer. And I think that, that this new kind of approach, while from a public health standpoint, may make all the sense in the world, which is perhaps to just watch it or to continue to monitor over time and not take more active uh, intervention, c- can make the individual patient somewhat anxious. Is that, is that some, it seems to me somewhat similar as to what's been talked about in terms of active surveillance with the prostate cancer situation?
3: Yeah, I think it helps in the sense that when the word cancer is sometimes thrown around a little loosely in in our discussions, it really changes the mindset of the patient. So when we have a discussion about maybe over treatment, they don't often hear that and they would want everything done, even though the treatments may actually cause more harm than just observing or or surveilling that patient. Um, So I think in this case by reclassifying this tumor into and taking the word cancer out it may be helpful in having the discussion of maybe you don't need all the treatments that a typical thyroid cancer may get Um, and so I can it's more I tell people oftentimes it's more of a chronic disease in the sense that we follow you make sure there's no problems um, rather than you know over treating with with the word cancer in the terminology let's
0: get to the treatment then because you're alluding to the fact that the treatment at times can cause some problematic side effects i mean for one thing if you take the entire thyroid then you're on thyroxine for life correct um i don't know what potential sequelae or problems that that brings but let's go through the treatments what is the most obvious or the most common
3: treatment So for someone with a a, a thyroid cancer, we take the whole thyroid gland out, which generally people do very well. Um, But there are some complications with uh, nerves in the area or low calcium after surgery, Um, you know, wound problems. But I would say generally people do very well. Um, And then you need to be on thyroid replacement medication or levothyroxine.
0: And some of the others you mentioned briefly was radioactive iodine is one.
3: Yeah so some patients now and we're starting to be a little bit more selective with using radioactive iodine in the past we would do for anyone who had a thyroid cancer take the whole thyroid gland out and give them radioactive iodine for everyone. Now and that was to do what to
0: kill any remaining cells? Correct
3: yeah so thyroid cells actually take up iodine So there's very few parts, and they really take up a lot of iodine. So we use that to our advantage by giving radioactive iodine. So that goes to thyroid cells and destroys those tissues. So any remaining thyroid cells would be destroyed by radioactive iodine.
0: But now you're not doing that as often because?
3: Yeah, we found that it's probably not beneficial to all patients to get radioactive iodine. And there are obviously some side effects with radioactive iodine too. You know, higher doses can cause, uh, you know, a dry mouth. Um, We talk more about secondary malignancies with higher and higher doses of radioactive iodine, although controversial. I think that's at least a consideration.
0: Is chemotherapy ever used?
3: It's very rare um, to give chemotherapy. More commonly, now we may give, uh, you know, external beam radiation for more aggressive types of uh, thyroid cancer. But for Typical thyroid cancers, chemotherapy is hardly ever used.
0: So radiation therapy is used occasionally. Chemo is hardly ever. How about this new targeted drug therapy, this whole idea of immunotherapy? Are they ever used for the thyroid?
3: We are starting to use some, uh, we call them TKIs or tyrosine kinase inhibitors. They are a little bit more selective and they're probably beneficial for some types of thyroid cancer. But again, we tend to use those for cancers that are more aggressive and maybe have, have uh, we've exhausted our other treatment options. So. so those
0: would be adjunctive. In other words, you Correct. would first do surgery is probably your main line, surgery, first yep. line. Mm-hmm. You remove the the, the the whole entire thyroid, even if it's only been involved with a smaller area in Correct. terms of the cancer. So basically, what's the prognosis? I have a little bit of time we have left. Is it a good prognosis generally to, if you have thyroid cancer and it's and it's found at a reasonable time?
3: Yeah, the vast majority of patients do very well after the diagnosis of thyroid cancer and treatment. Um, you know, with 65,000 new cases per year, you know, only 1,000 or 1,500 patients actually die of thyroid cancer per year, so, that, so generally people do do very, very well, and, and the most common types of thyroid cancers is, is, are the ones that do very well. So, so That's
0: basically uh, good news.
3: Correct, yeah. So I think uh, it goes back to, are we over-treating some of these thyroid cancers? And I think the answer is probably yes.
0: Well, that can be a further discussion at some point, but thank you so much for coming in and sharing all that very, very helpful information. My guest has been Dr. St- Scott Albert. He's Assistant Professor of Surgery and the Chief of the Division of Breast and Endocrine and Plastic Surgery at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. Coming up next, postpartum depression and one woman's journey back to health. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, while it seems like it should be the happiest time in a woman's life, the birth of a baby can trigger a mix of powerful emotions, from excitement and joy to fear and anxiety. And it can also result in depression and even psychosis. And it's more common than was once thought. Well, here with more on all of this are Heather Sherman, a mother who recently experienced this problem, and Christine Kowaleski. She's a psychiatric nurse practitioner and associate professor at Krause's Pomeroy College of Nursing, who currently facilitates a support group that Heather attends. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in.
5: Thank you for having us.
0: Christine, let me just start from the more technical side of things. Help us understand what we mean when we say the word postpartum depression or psychosis for that matter.
5: Okay. So, um historically we've referred to um women who are depressed after birth as having postpartum depression if it extends beyond two weeks after having the baby the baby blues occurs usually um for about the first two weeks and that is the mother will cry at the drop of a hat she doesn't understand why but she isn't feeling hopeless um and that usually goes away after two weeks so she's kind of more emotional but not necessarily Absolutely. F- she wouldn't necessarily verbalize a feeling of depression that's correct That's correct. The new terminology that um, we're using nationally is perinatal mood disorders because we know that mothers who have postpartum depression are telling us half of them had symptoms during their pregnancy. So we're trying to capture mothers during their pregnancy. So what is exactly, when we say postpartum
0: depression, Mm -hmm. you're saying it's a diagnosis that usually if this so-called blues period extends but there must be some other characteristics that make you feel it's depression and then I want to get to how is that different than psychosis
5: okay so um when someone is beyond the two weeks and they're um feeling um hopeless they're feeling um like they they are just not themselves um they will be having problems sleeping they'll have a lot of anxiety and oftentimes it isn't depression as much as it is driven by anxiety and the anxiety gets so big that they get depressed about being so anxious and, and
0: generally, are there sleep disorders that go with it? And Obviously, with a new baby, there's sleep problems all mm-hmm. the time. But I mean, are you seeing people withdraw from family and friends, um, feelings of worthlessness, a lot of the things that often go with feelings yeah, of depression? Yeah, they, they
5: feel like they, they don't experience joy in things that they once did. Um, and th- they often will complain of fatigue. And even though someone will say to them, Well, why don't you sleep when the baby sleeps? They can't. And so we do try to help them in resetting the sleep pattern. That's certainly one well, of our techniques. We're gonna to totally get to that. But how is that different than when we use the term postpartum
0: psychosis? I mean okay. where do the where do the symptoms change at that point? Because, well, I think, I, I just want to make one thing clear. Even with postpartum depression, you can have suicidal ideali- ideation. I mean, you can have thoughts of suicide,
1: mm-hmm.
5: but when would we call it psychosis? So when someone has psychosis, they um, it, they feel total despair. They will be hearing thoughts um, of someone telling them to harm themselves. Like hallucinations or... or um, auditory kind of hallucinations. Correct. Yes. They'll be thinking, I, I need to harm myself. I'm bad. Um, it, I would be better off. This baby would be better off without me. Um, or they're having some um, thoughts that, that you know, someone telling them that the baby shouldn't survive. So then that there's psychotic thoughts that we see in psychosis in general, but it's related to the postpartum period.
1: So Heather, tell us,
5: what happened to you?
1: Um, it all started about almost two years ago when I gave birth to my son, Owen. It was not um, going back and thinking about it. It started right after my water broke. Um, I started with anxiety, and I knew this was coming, and and I, there's nothing I can stop it or do anything about it. So,
0: And you didn't feel any of those feelings during the
1: pregnancy? No, I had a wonderful pregnancy, very... I was excited. I couldn't wait to meet my son and feel that love for him and see his face and, you know, get that overwhelming joy. And as soon as they, I gave birth to him and they placed him on my chest, I just looked down and I didn't have that feeling. I didn't. What um, did you feel? Nothing. I wanted him off of me. Really? Yes. I, the, as the panic attack started right away again and I, they took him, and I was fine, and then they would bring him back for that bonding, and I told my husband he could have him, and I tried to get some rest. Um, I did mention it to my ob when I went down to the postpartum floor that I was feeling anxious and not sure why, and, and stuff like, you know, um, and she put me back on my one of my medications that I had been on since I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression.
0: Okay, so in fact, you had some history here.
1: Yes, I did. I was diagnosed when I was eight years old. With? With anxiety and depression. Okay, and you had been taking medication throughout your life, through your teen years? Yes, yep. Um, But then did you stop during your pregnancy? I did, Mm -hmm. I was told um, I had to stop for the first trimester um, and then I actually went back on it my second trimester, and then got off of it my third trimester.
0: And during that time period, when mm-hmm. you went from the sec- first to the
1: second to the third, did you notice a great change in your mood? No, actually, I felt really good. I, They were actually surprised on how well I was doing, and, and so it was my decision to go back on it, because I didn't want to feel anything. Um, I didn't want to have anxiety attacks and stuff like that, so it was my decision for the second trimester to go back on it and then get off of it my third so the baby wouldn't have
0: any. And, and then what happened when you realized that you were in trouble again? You said you were looking to at least get some medication. Yeah, help.
1: Um, so my OB-GYN um, prescribed my medication again, and I started taking it right away. Um, but Unfortunately, it doesn't work instantly, and it she explained to me again it takes four to six weeks to get into your system before you feel any any better and I'm like oh yeah I know I know well um, I was okay when people were around I I put on that fake smile and um, so you were pretending though. yes I was pretending to be happy and pretending look at this baby I made Um, but in the inside I was screaming get him get him away I don't want him I was looking ways to get rid of him Um, that's when they discharged me. I went home, and that's when things got really, really um, bad. Um, did you, while you were in the hospital, did you ask
0: specifically? Did you feel like you were able to say, "I'm really not comfortable with how I'm feeling"? Did you ask for help?
1: I, you know, I didn't ask for help, but I did mention to the nurse on, you know, how I was feeling, and she said that's totally normal for a new mom, feeling the the anxiousness and. Not knowing, you know, where to begin with bringing him home and bringing all that. So I was thinking that's how I was acting. Maybe I'm acting like a new mother because I am one and I'm nervous to bring him home and start our lives with him. And that's how I was thinking. And, And I realized shortly after, about two weeks when we were home, when I woke up in the morning, I rolled over and I looked at Owen and then I rolled back to my husband and I said, I can't do this anymore. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, I can't do the panic attacks anymore and, and I just, I don't want to do them anymore. He's like, you're fine. Just go take a shower. Let's start our day. I'm like, okay. So I took a shower and that's when um, the voice came into my head that said, kill yourself. Get out of here. Um, So I took the razor and knew what I was going to do and called my husband and and he grabbed the razor, threw it out and said, okay, let's go find help. So we went to, we called the OBGYN and they said come in immediately. I came in and my husband and the doctor were doing their doctor talk back and forth, and I'm just sitting there bawling my eyes out because I don't understand what's going on. I don't know what they're talking about. No your one... husband's also a physician. I'll just mention that. Yes, yep. sorry. Yes. No, no, no. Um, um, so they weren't. No one was explaining to me what was going on. It was they're talking. and. By that time,
0: you were already on your medication
1: again. But yes. But it, yes, it hadn't yet kicked in. I was on it for two weeks, yes, but nothing mm-hmm. kicked in. Um, so... They, the doctor told me to go to Pep and I went to see. They said, "If you don't take her, then we're gonna call an ambulance and you're, they're gonna take her." My husband Rob said, "No, we'll we'll take her." And I was there for about five hours. Um, it was scary. Not a place for a new mother. Not a. There. I felt like I was a, in prison. I felt like I did something wrong, and then. After the five hours, they called me into a room for about 10 minutes. They put me on Xanax, and I told them I didn't want to be on that because it makes me sleepy. And I was trying, trying my hardest to bond with Owen. Um, and they said, No, let, let's try it and see if it works. Well, hold that thought for a second.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with Heather Sherman, a new mother who experienced. Uh, postpartum depression, psych- slash psychosis, and um, Christine Ko- Kovaleski, who is a nurse practitioner who specializes in this problem, and we're talking about um, Heather's experience. Go on. So, let's just get to the bottom line. You were, did you get help? That was that was helpful. And how did you do that?
1: We ended not getting help. Um, it took about three months. We tried. Um, the suicide hotline we tried um, talking to people that' on the, on the phone talk about um, how to deal with it and stuff like that. All that's a blur to me. I don't remember talking to people. I even talked to Chris one time and you know she unfortunately her daughter also just had a baby and I she wasn't in available. so um, but you eventually did find a therapist. I I did, um, three months after I gave given birth and I was actually living with my aunt at that time. I didn't want to be left alone. Um, I was afraid that I was gonna harm myself. Um, there were like I said, multiple attempts of trying to harm myself. Um When did you feel that you were starting to see a change? Did the
0: medication make the difference? What and I guess what I'd like to get to, Christine, is was this in large part um special a special case in the sense that she has some history there of having had this kind of problem for most of her life? Or would you say this follows
5: a story that you might find in a, in a person without such a history? Um, certainly, if somebody has a history of depression um, prior to giving birth, that they're a little higher risk. However, people without any history could experience postpartum psychosis. Um, and, and we don't really know why. Um, we believe that Um, most of these disorders come from the fluctuation of hormones. Um, But we do know it's the number one complication of pregnancy. A very small number of people um, experience psychosis like Heather did. For the most part, um, one out of seven have postpartum depression. And, um, you know, that's what Krause is doing at this point is trying to raise awareness by offering the support groups and educating the medical community and the frontline um, caregivers such as visiting nurses in WIC and Mental Health Association. So you so, have garnered a tremendous amount of a network, <clears throat> excuse me, a safety
0: net of support right now. Yes. In this community. We have. And you have a support group, Heather, that you attend that Christine also is part of. Tell us a little bit, very, I don't want to run out of time. How can people find out about this? Where is it being held? And then,
5: of course, I want to follow up with you and Tell us how you're doing. But go ahead. Um, so uh, the best way to reach us is to go to the Krause Hospital um, Perinatal Family Support Phone Line, which is three one five. and our support group is every Friday at Chicks and Hens on Erie Boulevard at 1130. Everyone is welcome regardless of where they have had their baby. Krause supports every mother. We have had mothers come from um, Utica. We've had mothers come from um, downstate so um, there is no there's no charge for the group. Um, they can call, and I will, you know, have a short interview with them on the phone before they come to the group. But That's a fabulous, fabulous them. service. And, and, and just to end, Heather, so <clears throat> this has been two
0: years.
1: Yeah. How you doing now? I'm doing awesome. Yeah. Yep. Actually, um, my husband and I were planning to have another one. Wow. Yeah. And so would you
0: say that the group currently is helping you continue to to maintain your feelings of of positivity and health
1: yeah um i would say just knowing that there's other moms going through it and I, i i'm not alone and i i want other moms that are suffering to know that they're not alone and that we do have this now unfortunately we didn't have this group when i was going through it and i had a I just had my family um but we now we do have this group and it's amazing it's made a big difference yeah well it's a very positive hopeful story I think one of the main things
0: takeaways for me is that you, you know even though we may not be screening for this routinely that people who experience it need to speak up yes and today these days in our community there is help yeah and to know that that you're not alone and
5: not
1: to be ashamed of yeah. how you feel and, and it is not their fault no and First things that go through mothers' minds is are they gonna take the baby away? Of course. And they're not. Right. And you're not a horrible mother for feeling the way you feel. Very well said. Well, thank you both
0: so much for coming in and sharing this very intimate story. Um, My guests have been Heather Shannon, uh, Sherman, excuse me, Heather Sherman, uh, a mother who recently experienced postpartum depression, and Christine Kovaleski. She's a psychiatric nurse practitioner and associate professor at Krause's um, Pomeroy College of Nursing. Once again, thanks so much for coming in. Next up, the latest household drugs that are being abused. Where are they coming from? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. With the growing public health problem of heroin and opiate addiction in this country, attention has recently turned to the potential for other household drugs that can be abused. Here with more on all of this is William Eggleston, a doctor of pharmacy and a fellow in clinical toxicology and emergency medicine at Upstate Medical University and the Upstate New York Poison Center. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Linda. So, There are a lot of drugs, I guess, in our households that can be abused. You know, tell us about that. These are non-prescription drugs, correct?
2: Correct, yeah, and there certainly are. And I think the big three that that we hear the most about and the ones that are going to affect the biggest part of our population are going to be hydrocarbons loperamide or imodium, and, and dextromethorphan, an ingredient found in a lot of cough and cold preparations. Okay,
0: so I want to take I want to go through each one of those and talk about exactly kind of how they're being abused and what are the potential complications or consequences, and then what do we do about it. So let's just start with the first one you mentioned, which was the hydrocarbon abuse. Now, what does that mean?
2: Sure. So, so hydrocarbons are just a fancy way of saying uh, a chemical that falls into a lot of the aerosolized containers we have in our homes. Um, So there's two classes. There's solvents, and solvents are things that we find in spray paints, and glues, and nail polish removers. Um, And those are the ones that we see the most frequent abuse with.
0: So back up for a second. There's something about aerosolized things, and then there are solvents, and those are both within the hydrocarbon world? Is that what you're saying?
2: So the solvent's in the aerosolized container, and that's the hydrocarbon that's being abused. So that dust-off spray that you use to clean off your keyboard, that has a solvent in it. You can get high off of that solvent. How about
0: something like um, perspirants?
2: If it's a spray-on, it can, theoretically. So some of the aerosol spray-ons, not the roll-ons or anything like that, they typically don't. Um, and then the other place you find them are fuels. So fuels is just as simple as it sounds. Butane from lighter fluid, regular gasoline. You can s- inhale all of these products and get high off of them.
0: So actually, if you were to just spray this dust off or or take a sniff of a butane container of some kind, well, well I want you to explain more of what actually happens. I mean, sure. what what are people actually doing so our listeners have an idea?
2: So users do one of three things. They either what's called sniff the product. So they sniff it directly from the container itself. They'll bag it, they'll spray it. We classically see maybe in TV shows where teenagers are spraying spray paint into a bag and inhaling the contents of the bag. That's another common method of abuse. And then the last would be uh, what we call huffing. And that's when they put the actual solvent onto a rag or a towel and hold it up against their face and just inhale. And when the substance gets in your body, it goes to your brain and it works in a way very similar to alcohol.
0: So is it basically you get that high, but is there any way to control the effect in terms of how much you do or how little you do, or is it just kind of random?
2: You're kind of luck of the draw. It's, it's tough to control how much you get, and the problem with it is in addition to getting you high, it also acts on your heart, and that's where we see most of the fatalities um, from folks who are using these hydrocarbons
0: Well, that's exactly my point, or the question I have is so, what are the complications of doing this besides getting high? What else happens?
2: Yeah, so that's the major one. It's called sudden sniffing death syndrome. Uh, It affects the way uh, electricity moves through our heart, and it can create abnormal heart rhythms. And about half of people who die from hydrocarbon use die from a sudden uh, abnormal heart rhythm. And this is irrespective of age. Correct. And, And most of the people who are using these are kids who are in our homes who are teenagers about 75 percent of the population using hydrocarbons is under the age of 18 and about half of users say that their first use was before 13 years of age does it become
0: something that they're addicted to if not actually physically addicted? Does it become kind of a
2: psychological addiction? So it can be both physically and psychologically addicting. It works in the brain, like I said, the same way as alcohol. So there is definitely an addiction piece there. Um, Most folks use it more as a gateway drug. So teens who use this are more likely to move on to alcohol, amphetamines, um, cocaine, other stimulants. But there is a subset of the population who does continue use into adulthood. And we can see a lot of issues with other medical problems as a result of that.
0: So do you see these people coming into uh, the ED and also basically to the poison center, or you get calls to the poison center? So
2: we see them coming in through the emergency department, and we do get calls from the poison center. So in 2015, uh, if you look at the data called into the poison center um, from January 1, 2015 till today, we had 63 calls related to abuse or misuse of hydrocarbons. And an overwhelming majority of those patients were in their teens.
0: And are there any kind of mitigating, I mean, what? how is this treated? I mean, basically, unless, if, obviously, if someone's gone into an arrhythmia and they have sudden death, there's probably not much you can do. But are there, how do they come in? What's the problem?
2: So typically, they'll come in because they've lost consciousness. And they've either lost consciousness because they weren't inhaling enough oxygen, because they were inhaling the solvent, or because they had the arrhythmia and they lost consciousness. If we get them early enough, we can treat it. There are things that we can do. And then long-term treatment becomes very tricky because most substance abuse programs aren't familiar with working with hydrocarbon patients. And when surveyed, a majority of, of programs say they wouldn't know what to do if someone walked in the door and said, I have a problem with hydrocarbon abuse.
0: That's very interesting. So let's get to the second one because then I want to kind of talk generally about this whole issue. But you, you mentioned loperamide, and that's also known on the on the market, It's it's... Formal name is Imodium, right? Correct. I mean, it's it's brand name. Yeah. So tell us about that. How is that abused? What what in that is a problem?
2: So most of us think about this as an innocuous over the counter drug that we took last time we had diarrhea. And in over the counter doses, it's completely safe. But the unique thing about Loperamide is it's an opioid. It's no different than heroin. It's no different than morphine or oxycodone. It works exactly the same way in our body. It's just that when you take it in doses recommended over the counter, your body doesn't absorb enough of it to get high off of it. Um, But as users have found out in the last five to six years, if you take enough of it, you can certainly overcome that and you can get high in the same way you would get off of any other opiate medication.
0: When you say the last five years or so, so has this been an outgrowth or the interest in this drug or in laparamide, an outgrowth of the idea that there are more people addicted to opiates?
2: I think that probably has something to do with it. So likely, there's, there's probably always been a subset of users who were using this under the radar. We weren't aware of it. But there was a big boom in 2009, um, progressing to present day. And a large piece of that probably has to do with folks looking for another outlet. There's new regulations in place. They can't get their prescription opioids. A lot of folks turn to heroin, and those not turning to heroin are are turning to emodium.
0: So what are the consequences of using this in, in, in large measure?
2: So I guess the theme of the day is is heart toxicity. So so loperamide, in addition to being an opioid, acts on the heart as well. And it can change the way we conduct electricity uh, in a manner very similar to hydrocarbons. And so folks who are taking their dose uh, that normally gets them high uh, end up with an abnormal heart rhythm. And this one, unlike hydrocarbons, can last for many days. Uh, So we've had patients that we've taken care of who've had multiple abnormal heart rhythms over the course of two to three days that have required uh, critical medical attention
0: so basically if they come into an ed or you hear about them through the poison center you basically have to treat them and, and maybe even hospitalize them for some time a
2: majority of the ones that we treat uh, end up in the hospital usually in the icu setting for many days how
0: much emodium do you have to take for that to happen
2: so users report anywhere between 50 to 300 tablets a day um, so a normal dose an over-the-counter dose would be four tablets total in a day so they are taking large doses um, but it's it's still cost effective as of as of today you can still get a 400 count bottle uh, for seven dollars and59 cents so if you're taking a hundred you're getting high for less than two dollars a day
0: so what is is there any kind of government attention to this or need for further regulation because obviously this was an over-the-counter drug that now, has very, very serious potential side effects.
2: Correct. And, and the reason it went over the counter was because folks didn't think there was a lot of abuse potential. But in recent weeks, our group actually at the Upstate New York Poison Center um, published two deaths in the Annals of Emergency Medicine about two weeks ago now. Uh, and it's received a lot of media attention, um, and there is some comment now from the FDA that they're considering they'll review the information and, and take whatever steps they deem necessary.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with toxicologist Dr. William Eggleston, and we're talking about household drugs that can be abused, and we were talking about Imodium. So there may be some um, consequence to all of this in terms of renewed government regulation. But um, let's get on to the third one, and then I want to talk generally about this sure. whole issue. So the third one that you mentioned is cough and cold uh, products. Yeah. So you might have in your medicine cabinet Dimetap or something of that nature.
2: Correct, yeah. And some of these cough and cold products contain an active ingredient called dextromethorphan. So this is an over-the-counter drug. It's sold as a cough suppressant. Uh, but the thing about dextromethorphan is, is is kind of the theme with all of these if you take enough of it, it gets you high and dextromethorphan acts in the body uh, at high doses the same way as PCP does wow. uh, so you can take enough of it and you can become altered you can hallucinate uh, but more, you know, wow. more concerning, your heart rate can bump, you can become very combative um, and you can have things like potentially seizures um, or other complications of just stimulant overdrive
0: in those same circumstances, do you end up basically in an ED and need treatment? And is it treatable? I mean, can you bring people back?
2: Yeah, so generally these patients end up in the ED um, completely out of their mind, right? So they're, they don't know where they are. They don't know who they are. They don't know who the people are around them. Um, and they're, they're generally very combative. And so we can, if they're in the appropriate setting, take care of them. It's it's mostly supportive. So we give them medicines to calm them uh, so that they are able to get through that piece and let their body break down the, the dextromethorphan. Uh, but you can see why, if someone had taken that at home or or with friends, how them becoming altered, agitated, angry could be a, a real danger to themselves and the people around them.
0: So it strikes me that all of these things are at, at right readily available, basically, you're talking about. For the I mean, most part, yeah. For anyone to do anything with. And I guess the question I would have is, and, and then also has the potential for addiction on top Correct. of it, I guess the question is what can or should people be doing? I mean, what should the government be doing now? What should parents or concerned you know, family members be doing?
2: Yeah, so at least the unique part with dextromethorphan, uh, New York State in 2013 did place legislation uh, that, requires folks to be 18 to purchase it. So we have taken some steps here in, here in our state to curb abuse. But
0: that's to purchase. Correct. But if you're living in a home where someone has cough yes. medicine, in you know, innocently purchased. You
2: can very easily get it. I think the big message, the big take-home message to, to parents especially, is that um, there are drugs in your home that you think are safe, that in the right doses can be very dangerous. And I think that we need to continue to treat all medicines as equals. Uh, so... Recognizing that just because it's over-the-counter doesn't mean we can take more of it or, or it's, it's any safer than something that's prescription. It still needs to be taken as recommended in order to get the medicine, the benefits of that medicine, uh, but also to prevent any bad effects. Um, and just recognizing that anything that's cheap legal, and easy to get to. Um, If there's abuse potential there, uh, our our teens are going to find a way to use it.
0: Yeah, that's really true and frightening in the fact that also that they're mixing drugs. So let me make a little segue here in the little bit of time we have left to talk about the fact that they are also grabbing prescription drugs that are not meant for them and using those. And besides the classic opioids that we know about, what other drugs have come up in terms of your experience in the home that parents should be, or a family member should be aware of in terms of what kids are using or sure. others are abusing.
2: So I think one of the biggest, uh, groups that we're seeing abuse now of is benzodiazepines. So these are sedative drugs. Uh, the classic ones that people think about are Adivan and Xanax. And these are drugs that work in the brain in a similar way to ethanol. And they're drugs that are in a lot of our homes. Um, and so I think as parents, uh, we need to recognize that uh, kids are getting their source of prescription drugs from mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, and it's important that we keep these meds in a place that's safe. We keep. Good counts on them. We're aware of how many we have. And if we have old medications, we have to get them out of the house. It's not good to. to... And
0: how do we do that just quickly? Sure.
2: So so there are a couple of ways. There are pharmacies that will take those drugs back. are national drug take back days. So in uh, October and April every year. And then most sheriff's departments will take controlled substances back.
0: Mm-hmm. and what there's an and there's another class of drugs also that's being abused yeah
2: so uh stimulant drugs adhd medications like methylphenidate uh amphetamines so Concerta, ritalin uh these are drugs that a lot of teens and younger younger kids are on and they are abusable kids in high school kids in college that are, are not prescribed these medicines they want them too. uh and there's many instances of kids getting bullied or, or having their medicines stolen from them by f- folks that they thought were friends so Parents recognizing those meds are abusable and, and should probably be kept in the home and, and away from places where the, the temptation to sell them or distribute them uh, is less.
0: So just bottom line summary of all of this. I mean, we need some government help here or some way of regulating some of these household drugs that you're talking about. But what's the overall arching statement? I think, I think
2: the overall arching statement is the classic toxicology statement. So the dose makes the poison. Uh anything in in large amounts is probably not good and we need to recognize that just because something has the label of over the counter or paint or nail polish remover doesn't mean that it's necessarily safe and we need to always take caution when we use these products and and use them as we're instructed to.
0: Wonderful. Very, very important message. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been William Eggleston. He's a doctor of pharmacy and fellow in clinical toxicology and emergency medicine at Upstate Medical University and the Upstate New York Poison Center. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Thank you, Linda. Birth can be a joyful moment, an experience to be savored, when the new life first emerges safely into welcoming arms and hearts. Poet Jennifer Richter brings this joy to us in her poem called First Words. It recalls for her son the moments of his birth and the first months after, and why they chose his name. First words. Child, you were light all at once. You did not tunnel toward the bright world waiting. From a small slit, like a crimp in the blinds, they pulled you from me and held you to the sky, held you crying, held you shining, your fair skin lit from the inside, your hair one huge fine red flame, Luke, luminous, We chose the name before we were sure of you, and since you came, our usual season of rain has stayed away. Today, sun strong at our backs, day of the year's longest night, you sit on my lap, wave your arm in the most deliberate gesture I've seen, follow the spread of your fingers across the floor, and just like that, add shadows to what you already know. Already you have a song-like voice, though it has taken four months and this moment to coax my first words. Strange, this turning from you to the page, so I wait until I hear the poem whole in my head. Luke, the one who found words for that one birth, that famous star. In this season, son, you live in holy mouths. When you were born, the doctors held you up with arms raised and all our faces tilted to the place blessings come from and names and first words and light. Luke, luminous, your hand in the air is a star. On the floor, our shadow is still one body.
0: for joining us for HealthLink on air brought to you each week by upstate medical university in syracuse new york join us again next week when we learn about new efforts to extend mental health support services plus what all new parents need to know and all about osteoporosis if you'd like to listen again to this week's show you can find a podcast of it on itunes just search for HealthLink on air that's all one word And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for
4: listening.